Well, here at Johnson Street, we're still celebrating Easter. Uh, For these weeks following Easter, we're looking at some passages that celebrate why Easter was such a big deal. What events the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus set into motion. And the way we're doing that is looking at the book of Revelation at some scenes of worship in heaven. Those things wouldn't be going on if it were not for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So we're reading those and realizing that as those things are happening in the spiritual realm, that they reach into the physical as well, that they, we join them in our hearts, and one day we'll be standing there ourselves along with them. So this is Revelation chapter 7 about the great multitude of people standing around the throne of God. Well, since they're standing around the throne of God, let's be standing as we hear this description. Beginning in verse 9, chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God bless the reading of his word. From there, I think that's probably the tune to that song. It's great. How do we measure a church? How do we determine if a church is healthy and doing well? Well, you know what it pops into everybody's mind. It's the numbers, isn't it? I get tickled whenever I run into a friend or go to a ministry uh, uh, gathering of ministers and meet people for the first time, and they say, where are you from? I tell them, Johnson Street in San Angelo. And one of the first questions that comes up is, well, how big is Johnson Street? How, how, many, how many people come to worship? And I kind of understand that. 
I kind of understand why it is that uh, we, we sort of look to that because that seems to be a sign of health is if the church is, is fairly large and is growing. And, and I don't have any problem with that because most of the people that ask me that question, Johnson Street's larger than their church. And so I get to look at them and say, oh, you mean, no, anyway. I worked with a guy named Charles Seibert for a while. And uh, many of you know him, he's at ACU now, but uh, when I was working with him, he gave me a little bit of advice that stuck with me. He said, you know, Tommy, if the number of people on Sunday morning, if if you determine your self-worth as a minister based on how many people come to church, then make sure you do the counting. There's a lot of wisdom in that. There's other ways to evaluate how well a church is doing. And really here at Johnson Street, we've come up with another way. It's our vision statement. You know, it's written there on the front of our bulletin and goes throughout all of our literature that we are a church that calls upon people to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength based on the great commandment that uh, Jesus gave whenever he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And therefore, when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we realize that these are sort of four different areas of our personality. That really, to love God with our heart, uh, we find God in our relationships. And there are people that, that whenever they are with other Christians and they're getting close to other Christians, that's when they feel the, the closest to God. It's, it's when those relationships are strong and and other people love God more with their soul uh, when they're in worship or they're all by themselves uh, just uh, meditating upon who God is and they feel that connectedness to God or they're deep in prayer to God. Those are people that, that easily love God with their soul or their mind. Many people feel the closest to God when they've got their Bibles open and they're studying God's Word and listening to what He's saying about Himself to us and how He's giving us direction on where to go and how to live and other people are the are the closest to God when they're out doing something whenever they're out serving others and feel like that they're they're following the commandment of God to go out and to be a blessing in the lives of others and that's when they feel the closest so here at Johnson Street we recognize that we recognize that we are called upon to love God God with heart soul mind and strength and all of us do that better in one of those areas than we do the others And so the way we measure this church when we get together as staff and sometimes as elders and staff, we ask ourselves the questions, well, how are we doing in providing a place at Johnson Street for these four different kinds of people we have? Are we helping the people that discover God most easily in their heart? Are we helping the people that find God most easily in their soul? Are we helping people with their minds? And, and are we helping people to go out and to serve and to do things? Another way we measure is, and how well are we helping all these four different people get together and love each other? You know, those of us who love God more with our souls, we kind of look down sometimes on other people that don't see it the same way. You know, we'll have a great, marvelous worship service, and someone says, I didn't like that. And you go, what's wrong with you? You know, that was wonderful. Or someone can fuss about, well, the Bible study wasn't deep enough. All we did is sit around and hold hands and cry. And other people said, yeah, but we were so close together. So we got all these different people running around. Well, how well are we doing 
at getting all you guys to love each other and to affirm each other and recognize that, yeah, you're different from other people, but that doesn't mean that they're not as spiritual as you. And finally, how well are we doing in helping each other grow in the areas we're not very strong in? We don't want to just be satisfied with being strong in heart or being strong in soul. We really do want to come to love God as individuals with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. So that's one way we're trying to measure Johnson Street. But a lot of people don't get that. And we're kind of back to the numbers again. Well, how well are we doing with our attendance figures? How well are we doing with our budget figures? And, you know, some of that really is driven by not the great commandment, but the great commission. Churches have heard for years, the preachers get up and preach at you that we're to go out into all the world and make disciples. And so we hear that mantra to go out and to, to bring others in, and we feel that that is something that we should be doing, that we must be doing. And we're right. In fact, the reason I got off on the Great Commission and numbers and everything is that it's the Great Commission that really sets the background for this text that we just read out of Revelation. It is that commandment to go out and to make disciples of all nations that really is realized and fulfilled in this picture that we have of what's going on in heaven right now. In Revelation chapter 7, we have a picture of what the Great Commission has produced. In Revelation 7, we have a picture of what the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has produced. And one thing it's produced is a lot, a lot of numbers. If we had read the whole chapter, backed up to the first part of chapter 7, we would have heard that standing before the throne of God are 144,000 people. 144,000 people. Now, that's a few more than that's in this room right now. In fact, if you want to visualize 144,000 people, think about the Super Bowl when it's held in the Rose Bowl there in Pasadena, California. You know, they always have a blimp shot, and you're looking down on this stadium, and it holds a little over 100,000 people. Well, cut that in half, add another half to that, and that's how many people this passage or pictures as standing before the throne of God. But that's not all. Because in the part of Revelation 7 we did read, not only do we have 144,000 people standing around the throne of God, we have with them another group that is too big to even count. That you can't even count the number of this other group that's standing around the throne of God. Now, that's amazing. Talk about church growth. The next time someone calls me and says, hey, Tommy, well, how are the numbers doing at your church? I'm going to say, you know, in early service, we had 144,000. And then in late service, the guys just gave up counting. You know, they couldn't even count that high. Well, actually, it's not the numbers here that are connected to the Great Commission. Because really... The Great Commission is not about numbers, it's about scope. Whenever those disciples first heard Jesus 
as he was about to leave them from his earthly being and, and to go and to ascend back into heaven, as he was about to leave, he gave them the great commission. And what really knocked them over was that he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because up until that point, who were the people of God? The Jewish people. And if you wanted to make someone a child of God, you went to the Jewish people and talked to them. Or if you did happen to run into someone outside, then you tried to bring them into the Jewish people. But now the great commission is that you go out and you can bring anyone in. It's like Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Yes, it came to the Jews first, but now it's open to everyone. And this is what Revelation chapter 7 is really celebrating. Because if we go back and look, you know those 144,000? Who are they? They're the people out of the Jewish people. 12,000 people out of each of the 12 tribes. Now, I hope we realize that as we look at Revelation that none of these numbers are exact. What does 12 represent? Absolute perfection. And if you got 12 times 12,000, it's just like, wow. And as Jewish Christians would hear this read, they would go, man, that's great because we've got all 12 tribes back because 10 of the tribes had been lost a long time ago. And so here before the throne of God, based on the resurrection, the, de the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have reconstituted Israel, God's people, 12 times 12,000, 144,000 people standing before the throne of God. But also, the numberless group comes from all the rest of the world. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has been so effective in the world that more people than can be counted have been brought before the throne of God. So we're looking out over this vast group of people. You can't count them. And they're all gathered around the throne of God. And we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to look at them a little closer. And we're going to put the numbers aside because the numbers are irrelevant, aren't they? That's not what's really important other than to be impressed with how many people love God and have loved him on this earth. But let's look a little closer at these people because this is the church glorified, the new Israel, the new Israel that came into being based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And as we're looking in to this scene, which is going on right now, by the way, as we peek into heaven, I keep pulling this curtain back. I don't know if you see this curtain or not, but there is a curtain here that separates the physical from the spiritual. And what's happening in our universe is not just what we're seeing, but what's going on in the spiritual realm too. And one of the things about Revelation is, is it pulls this curtain back so that we can look in. It dawned on me this week, I thought, Tommy, you're so old-fashioned. You know, I got all these young folks out here. They don't care anything about curtains. Okay, we're going to Skype into heaven, all right? Can we do that? Log on, 
And then they're right there on your computer screen. And maybe that's the way God would have done it with John today. Maybe he would have said, open your computer up, John, and look, we're going to show you what is happening in the cosmos, what is happening in this universe. And so here we are, we're peeking into our computer screens, we're looking past the curtain, and here's what's going on. And as we look, we can't count the people because there's too many of them. But remember, these are not faceless people. Everyone in this room right now knows somebody in that crowd. And if we were able to look, we'd recognize them. Oh, there's this person. Oh, there's that person. It makes this scene very, very personal. That as we're able to peek in and see this great crowd gathered around the throne of God, we can call some of their names. And we receive such great assurance to know that they yet live. And by looking at them and seeing what's going on, we are encouraged. Encouraged that they're doing so well. Encouraged to know that one day we'll join them too. Well, take a look at them. Here we go. They're wearing white robes. What does that mean? Why are they wearing white robes? Well, white robes uh, represents purity or righteousness. Now, some of the people that are there wearing a white robe, you might say, wait a minute. (laughs) I knew that person, and I could name some things about that person that I didn't like, and probably God wouldn't have liked either. How did they get a white robe? Well, if we skip down to chapter, I mean, to verse 14 in chapter 7, we find out that they were wise enough and faithful enough that while they lived, they washed their robe in the blood of the Lamb. Now, that seems to be somewhat ironic, doesn't it? If you were to take a piece of clothing and dip it into blood, it wouldn't come out white, would it? We get the point, don't we? We know that the blood of the Lamb was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We know that He who knew no sin became sin for our behalf, on our behalf, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. By the fact that He took our sins upon Himself and died for them, then He is able to offer to us His purity and His righteousness. So not a one of those folks standing before that throne deserves to be there other than by the fact that they are wearing a clean, white, pure robe that was made pure and white by the blood of Jesus. And as they stand there, they're waving palm branches. Now what's up with that? Where's the other place in the Bible where you have people waving palm branches? It's when Jesus came into Jerusalem. You remember that story, don't you? What does it mean to wave these palm branches? Well, that's a sign of victory. That's the way ancient people welcomed conquering heroes in. It was to say, we won! And they'd show up for the victory parade, and they'd all wave their palm branches and celebrate the victory. Well, what victory are they celebrating? Well, they were singing the song right there, weren't they? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That is the victory. That's really the definition of salvation. Salvation is we won. 
that we're at peace now, that everything's okay, that there is a sense of well-being. It's going to work. It's going to be fine. Now, the interesting thing is here that they're telling us in, the, in heaven that the only place that you're going to find salvation is in God. Now, i tell you what. We, of all people, are living proof of that. Think about it. We're going to look at this again in just a moment. Think about it. Those of us sitting in this room, for the most part, have lived our whole lives in what has been the greatest country, nation, ever to exist on the face of this earth. There has never been a nation that has provided as much wealth, as much security, as good a life as the United States of America has for its people. And yet, is everything okay in your life? Has everything been easy? Is it all salvation? Is it all peace? Is it all good? If what we have here as a nation has not been able to produce and to deliver what you need in the heart, your heart of hearts and in your deepest soul, there is nothing on this earth that ever will. It'll only come from God. He is the only source of true salvation. Now you can imagine that many of the people gathered around that throne, they didn't live in good times like we live in. They didn't live in good situations like we live in. They didn't live where they could get out of the elements. They didn't live where they could be warm in the winter and cool in the summer. They lived very difficult lives. And yet, they too have experienced the salvation that comes. So as they're waving the palm branches and they're singing, they're singing Salvation belongs to our God. One of the elders comes up to John and says, Who are these people? Where did they come from? John says, you got to tell me. He said, These are the people that have made it through the great... That version said tribulation. My version says ordeal. I wish we had time. Sometime we'll have a class. Right there is sort of a parting point of a lot of different ideas about heaven and about Jesus' return and everything. And a lot of people take that one little verse and go off onto some kind of idea about a future tribulation and have a whole system built upon that and about two or three other verses out of Revelation. Sorry, that's not me. Hope, I hope I don't disappoint you. I go more with what the church has interpreted for the first 1,900 years you know, not, not something that came up in the early 1900s and has suddenly captured the attention of American Christianity where we're off onto tribulation, we're off onto a, you know, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth with Jesus sitting on a throne in a literal Jerusalem. Uh-uh. This ordeal is going on right now. This tribulation is where we are on earth right now. It's the way Augustine and all the people before 1900 interpreted it. And you know the truth of that. As we were just saying, even in the greatest country in the world, you have ordeals. You have tribulations. You have sufferings. Now, some of these people had actually had to lay down their life because of their faith. Probably, you will never be asked to do that. 
But you have gone through this life and have found out that living involves some problems. Anyone here, in fact, do you, I, I keep going back to this. One of my uh, good friends, Albert Winstanley, was a, was a great English preacher, an Englishman, uh, very much a gentleman. And he one time put up a sign on his church building over the door that said, only sinners can come in here. And his people made him take it down. They were embarrassed to walk in. And, and he was embarrassed for them because he said, you don't realize the only people who can come to church are people who are willing to admit they got problems. That's the only people that ought to come to church. It's the only reason to come to church. And when you walk in the door, you're telling everybody, I got a problem and I need help. I cannot save myself. The only salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. So these are the people standing before the throne who have made it through the great tribulation, the great ordeal. They have suffered in life, some of them for following a suffering servant. But as we can testify, this life does involve suffering, and we know that it involves suffering. And that's why the rest of this is absolutely some of the most beautiful language that's ever been put down on paper. Because in order to address those who have come to the throne of God through suffering. There's a shepherd that emerges. And how wonderful it is to have a shepherd who protects us and takes care of us and leads us and guides us. A little bit ago, we read together, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want And that language just has to touch your heart, doesn't it? This passage takes it and changes it just a little bit. Says the same thing, but if we were to take the 23rd Psalm and filter it through Revelation 7, what we would say is, the Lamb is my shepherd. I shall not want. What a great irony that the Lamb has become the shepherd. The one who gave his life for us is now the one that leads us and guides us and protects us through our life and opens up the door to life eternal. It is the Lamb who leads us to protection and spreads his tent over us and shelters us from the harm. It is the Lamb that leads us as we address evil in our lives because he took on the evil of the world and died for it. He is able to minister to us whenever we run smack dab into evil in our world as well. And all of us do. Sometimes the evil is out there. Sometimes it's something other people are doing and it causes us to suffer. Sometimes it's our own evil. That deep in our heart, we just can't quite let go of it. Deep in our heart, we keep trying ways that we know are not the ways of salvation. We know are not the ways of God. And the lamb gently comes beside us and with his staff and his rod, he pushes us in a better direction and says, let's go over here. If we read this passage carefully, we see that it has to do with leading us to water. All of us have been thirsty in our lives, thirsty for a lot of different things. And just like the 23rd Psalm, Revelation 7 talks about 
That salvation is brought to us through the Lord by leading us to the water that we need. And you know, that water stands for a lot of things. As Christians, we all enter the kingdom of God through water, do we not? And that water, both literally and symbolically and figuratively, continues to wash over our soul. And it feeds us, it gives us the refreshment, it gives us a way to live. And he brings us to food. It says that that no longer shall we be hungry. And in the kingdom of God, not only our bodies are fed, but our souls. But the most precious line, the one that just sort of rings in our ears in this passage, is that last one, isn't it? The Lamb will shepherd us. He will bring us to the still waters that we need. He will provide for us. He will feed us. And God shall wipe away every tear. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I don't know that I've thought about it before. But we're probably not going to make it to the throne of God without tears in our eyes. It's the nature of this life. It's the nature of what we are called to go through. But I think every one of us will arrive before the throne of God with a tear in our eye. Either a tear based on what we have been through, a tear based on leaving those that we love behind. And if not that, maybe a tear for once we get there realizing what we could have been who we could have been, how much of our lives we wasted. Yes, when we first stand before the throne of God, we'll all have tears in our eyes. But God, being the merciful God He is, will reach out and wipe away those tears. Let's stand and sing.